ICQ Podcast episode 385 is 10 What's Enough. Well, hello and welcome, fellow Amateur Radio enthusiasts, and this our 385th episode of the ICQ Amateur Radio podcast. Supported in this episode by an anonymous donor, Nicholas Lutz, Whiskey 6, November, India, Kilo, and of course our monthly and subscription donors. In this episode, Martin MRB is joined by Dan, Kilo Bravo 6, November Uniform, Karen, KD2, Golf Uniform Tango, Edmund, Mike Zero, Mike November Golf, and Ed, DD5 Lima Papa, to discuss the latest Amateur Radio news. Myself, Colin, M6PR, Ryan rounds up the news in brief, and this episode's feature asks the question, is 10 watts enough? Well, as always, it's your very kind support and, uh, as I say, donations that keep us uh, on the air and doing what we do, and uh, as I say, keeping all the services that we're working on, like the digital group and the website, etc., up and running. And uh, this episode, along with our uh, anonymous donor, we'd also like to thank uh, Nick uh, Lutz, uh, Whiskey 6 November India Kilo. And he uh, said that it's his pleasure to help out the podcast and to show his support in its continuation going forward. So uh, thanks, uh, Nick, for uh, your very kind donation. Now, you can do what our supporters do in a very, very simple way. All you do is you visit www.icqpodcast.com forward slash donate. And so the best thing I can suggest you is think of the value you get for the show, turn it into a monetary figure, and select one of our options to send that our way. Now we're going to uh, head on with our show, and we're going to join Martin, Dan, Karen, Edwin, and Ed to discuss and generate thoughts about the latest Amazon radio news, including how healthy is your club, and New Zealand acts over imported handheld transceivers. As always, hope you enjoy. Well, hi guys, welcome to episode 385 of the ICQ podcast and tonight's news roundtable for that episode. Tonight, I'm joined by Mr. Dan Romchek, KB6NU. Hi, Dan. Good evening. Good to have you back. I know you've been uh, doing all sorts of things and you'll obviously tell us later. We also have uh, Karen Eve Murray, GD2GUT. Hi, Karen. Hello, how are you doing, Martin? Oh, ducking and diving is always, Karen, but I'm getting there, you know. <laughs> Moving back to the UK, Mr. Edmund Spicer, M0MMG, who's uh, fighting the storm overhead at the moment. Good evening, Martin. Good evening, everybody. Yes, welcome to a very rainy and thundery uh, West Sussex coast in the south of England. Yeah, so we might hear a few thunder, thunder and lightning from you. So uh, see how it goes. Moving to Germany, we have uh, Mr. Ed Durant, DD5LP. Hi, Ed. Yeah, good evening, everybody. Uh, when did you move to the Isle of Man, Karen? You said GD, not KD. I noticed. I didn't want to say, <laughs> but I must, I must tell you. I must it's a compliment. You. you just got to grow the third leg. <laughs> did I get it wrong? <laughs> I am speechless. I, am, I will mute my microphone. <laughs> Well, sorry, Karen, if I got your whole sign wrong. It's uh, KD2GUT. It's quite all right. I appreciate the change of address. I'm living on one island off of New York. Moving to another island isn't half so bad. I think we've set the tone of the of the show this evening, haven't we? Everybody's in a good humour. That's good. We, we are in good humour. We are in good humour. And mistakes sometimes happen, uh, but they're never malicious on this podcast. No. no. 
Right, let's have a look at our first news story. I lifted this one straight off Dan's website. It was something that uh, the ARRL half put out, I believe, in talking to Dan. The title got us quite heated for a long time until we kind of think what it might really be. And that's how healthy is your club? And then there was just a lot of bullet points that uh, we were suggesting uh, were interesting, but they didn't really tell us much. Dan, I'm going to let you go first on this one because you were more positive than me. Okay. So I, I did attend Ham Exposition a week and a half ago. And the ARRL had a booth there, and they were passing out these checklists that were, and it's titled Radio Club Health Check. And it's just got a bunch of things that apparently the ARRL thinks healthy clubs should do. And there's things on here like holding regular meetings, presentations, mentoring, sponsoring events like special event stations, soda operations, POTA operations, uh, emergency communications, all, all kinds of different things. And they publish this without really any other explanation. So th the question is, do they expect clubs to do all these things to be healthy? Or are these just suggestions that clubs that are healthy would be doing and not necessarily all of them. And my my take on it is, yes, this is sort of a uh, not not so much a checklist, but a bunch of suggestions for clubs to make themselves more active and more, uh, you know, provide more public service. There's a bunch of public service things on here. And and that's that. So I, I just uh, pub published that on my website and Got a bunch of comments. <laughs> yeah, there were quite a few from us earlier on, but not at, not aimed at you because we didn't really understand it, Dan. You know, it, uh, there were lots of things that was like, well, if you don't, I, I couldn't work out whether if you don't do all these, you're not a good club or whatever. Um, there's some good stuff here, some some su good suggestions, but right, right. So, for example, under emergency communications, which they don't even say emergency communications, they use the the, the shorthand MCOM, it's got Aries nets, Aries drills. Aries is like, uh, you've got something they call Ray something or other there. Yeah, in the UK, we have Raynet. Raynet, right. And then CERT training, that's Community Emergency Response train, uh, Team. And then OXCOM. Well, our club really doesn't do any of that. As a club, some of the members are involved in that, those activities outside of our club, but not having them as part of our club doesn't mean we're not a healthy club. It's, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I hear where you're coming from. Ed, what's your thoughts on this one? Well, again, I think we all went off at an angle when it said this is a health check for clubs, which it isn't. It's a list of suggestions. But as a document, it's not a document. It's a checklist. I've actually added a few more to it as well because I found this this list from the ARRL didn't cover enough of online media. Uh, there's no mention of setting up a club website. There's no mention of being involved in social media, which in this day and age, clubs, in my opinion, should be. And the other key point, of course, is there's so much on this. There's no one club is going to cover all of these different areas. So you'll quite possibly get a club that is 
really into emergency communications and does that area. Another club that's into contesting and does that area. Another club that's into, I don't know what, CW, let's say, and does that area. So uh, it doesn't mean, that's what we eventually found out, that the list doesn't mean you've got to do all of these or you've got to try to do all of these. It's pick out of these and see if there's some new ideas for your club. If your club is stalling, why not try one or two of these and just see see if they help, uh, see if they get interest with the club members and you know, then that might be a, a way to, to get a bit of more active life back into the club. And, uh, yeah, it, using it as a tool for that, it, it's also, although it's from the ARRL and uses some US organisation names, the list should also be quite applicable to, to clubs in other countries. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Ed. I think you're right. And um, I know, you know, early on, I was saying that I think there's a lot of apathy in the hobby and Dan has seen, fortunately, Dan has seen the reverse in some some places, which is fine. And, and I'm, I'm sure probably next month we could flip the other way and I'll have seen positive and be really positive. But there are some interesting stuff, as you say in here. Karen, what's your thoughts? I have an interesting well, interesting to me anyway, interesting perspective on this. Um, I'm a member of a, a handful of clubs. My main club is a huge club, really big club. They can check a lot of these boxes on this list. The other club, which I recently joined a couple of months ago, is a very tiny club, really small. Are they both healthy clubs? You bet. Are they both able to check off everything or most things on the checklist? No, not the little club, but what makes them a healthy club is member engagement. And Ed, I think you touched on that when you spoke about social media, recognizing it and being involved in that. I've seen a couple of clubs, even um, my CW club, they're active on Discord. They have DMR talk group. The idea is uh, if you're going to have a membership and build community out of those members, you've got to nurture that community in between QSOs, in between meetings. And so whether or not you have all of these special events and DX contests and all these other things that perhaps larger clubs have the person power to do, I think the heart and soul of it is community engagement, membership engagement, and that that really comes by stressing the interpersonal relationship between the members. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Karen. And the other thing is with a lot of clubs, it's what you put in is what you get out. If you're not enthusiastic or you've got somebody – doing something that's not enthusiastic about it, it'll put people off, you know, enthusiasm. I mean, as I said pre-recording, if I lived in Ann Arbor near Dan, I'm damn sure I would be a Morse code operator because Dan would say to me, Martin, you've got no excuse. You're not like 5,000 miles away. Get Get on your bike and start doing it now, you know. And he's right. And... I would probably be very, very excited there. So kind of like that. Edmund, what's your thoughts? Well, the one that really jumped out at me in that long list above all others was 
welcome new members. And I'll tell you my personal experience here, which I don't think I've ever mentioned on the ICQ podcast before. In the summer of 2009, I found out that the local club was having an on-air night. Now, I can't actually remember where or how I found it out. It was either that I was passing a branch of WH Smiths and went in and had a look in Practical Wireless, or the other possibility is that on the local BBC radio station, which was uh, BBC Southern Counties Radio at the time, they had a slot where they would publicise what's ons events for charitable and non-profit making organisations. So either way, I got wind that the club was having an on-air night, which in the event they weren't because, as I found out when I turned up, they didn't actually have any antennas up at the time. But that that's by the by. So I walked into this room unannounced, uninvited, knowing nobody at all and fully expecting to be ignored or pretty much ignored probably more through social awkwardness rather than people deliberately trying to be rude or hostile but um, I walked in the door and at the opposite end of the room there were two chaps deep in conversation with each other and I mean really deep in conversation one of them turned and looked at me instantly he cut off the discussion with his friend and I mean instantly there wasn't even a, a 10 second gap well there wasn't even a two second gap come to that it was instant and he looked at me and he smiled and he walked towards me extended his hand introduced himself as the chairman of the club talked to me made me feel welcome told me about the club introduced me to people and by the time I left he was talking about how the club would be very pleased to put me forward or set me up for the foundation license and he invited me to a special event station which happened to be the International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend which was two or three weekends in the future at that point Unfortunately, he died a year or two later. His name was Steve Glue, Mike Zero, Sierra Foxtrot Whiskey. And in no small part, one of the reasons that I, I went all the way up to the full license is because I knew that he, want, he would have wanted me to. And I'm pretty sure that when I'm really old and my memory is failing and I've forgotten pretty much everything else that I've ever known about amateur radio, the one memory that will remain will be what he did that night. And it sounds so blindingly obvious, doesn't it? If you're a club chairman or chairwoman and somebody comes in, go and greet them, talk to them, welcome them especially if they don't already hold an amateur radio license rather than being a returning amateur whose license lapsed many years ago. But so often I see on social media people making comments along the lines of, 
oh, I went to the club, but I wasn't made welcome or everybody ignored me or all that kind of thing. So if, if anybody who's, who's on the committee of a club or the chairman of a club listening to this takes one thing away from this conversation at all, please, 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 if you have newcomers or returning hams coming into your club, then for goodness sake, make them welcome because all the other things on this list hang on having members and everybody has been a new member at some point, even if it was a long time ago. And that's how it all started for me, Martin. What do you think about that? Yeah, I can equate to what you're saying. And uh, yeah, you, it's it's common politeness. I must admit, I joined Sutton and Sheen years ago. I then joined another club because I didn't feel that I was being made particularly welcome at Sutton and Sheen. That club, the other club, was I, I was a member for three or four years. But I persisted with Sutton and Sheen. <laughs> and uh, obviously, um, you know, come a long way with them. And uh, you're right, you know. It is in everybody's interest, not just the chairman, and I'm not saying that just because I because I am the chairman of Sutton Chain, but equally it is important that all members make any new person welcome. So that's where I would go on that one. So good list worth looking through, guys. It'll be up on the website. There might be some pointers that you might want to look at. Good list, but don't feel you're failing if you only do two or three of them. Whatever you do, do it well. Okay, let's move to our next news story. New Zealand acts over importing of handheld transceivers. And, yeah, this guy um, basically looks like he's going to face a $30,000 fine. Ed, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I will do. And it's like we've seen from other stories This particular one's from New Zealand, but we've seen other stories from the US and and elsewhere where the spectrum management people, so the the, uh, national regulator, have warned people not to import. This this guy was a retailer, effectively, not to import certain equipment that doesn't conform to the standards that they require. And this guy just kept doing it. So that's why he's facing a $30,000 New Zealand dollar fine. Uh, he was a bit of a wally and didn't uh, learn and didn't listen when he was warned. Interesting in the article, though, which is up on the, which will be up on the website on the icqpodcast.com website, is he says uh, this story relates to the importation of two types of handheld transceiver which should only have been sold to licensed radio amateurs. So that's good because, you know, the, it, it, it's reflecting that the um, regulator in New Zealand understands uh, and trusts the amateur radio people in the country uh, that they can handle whatever radio equipment comes in. They know how to use it, where to use it, uh, whether it's faulty or whether it's okay. But this guy was ordering, was his 50 off and uh, of, of various, uh, well, one particular uh, handy talkie, and obviously not selling to the amateur radio community, but selling to whoever else who were not licensed. And uh, as we know, many, many handy talkies these days, in fact, most of them 
are actually wideband units because they're sold into different markets. For instance, building sites and um, such like can use the same radios that an amateur can use on VHF and UHF. And this guy just kept importing and selling them and the uh, he got taken to court and he ended up pleading guilty and he will be scheduled for sentence later this year. He faces a fine of up to 30000 uh, New Zealand dollars, so it hasn't actually been decided yet. But, you know, if, if the law comes and tells you or the regulators come and tell you, don't do this, you don't keep doing it. And this guy did. Over to you, Martin. Yeah, I, I think you've got to listen to what's what. And I know that I've got a couple of Chinese uh, handy talkies and I hold a license in the States. I hold a license in the UK. And our 77s band is different to the States one. But my my uh, wideband transceivers are great when I come over to the States because I know what the band plan is for the States. I know what the band plan is for the UK, and I know not to go out of the band. So, you know, amateurs are not the problem here. Karen, what's your thoughts? Well, I'm wondering if the picture would change at all if these were purchased merely as listening devices with the transmitter portion disabled although again why would you buy a two-way radio if if you were only going to listen uh certainly doesn't make a lot of sense i think uh frankly what what we've been saying about the different band plans in the different countries uh that's the, that's the hazard here. I mean, these radios could could and probably would fall into the hands of people who very much intend to use them uh, on the amateur frequencies for purposes other than amateur radio, particularly if they are not licensed. But again, I, I question, just like people enjoy uh, getting a shortwave radio and, and listening, and of course that is just a receiver, whether the picture would change at all if these little portable devices were only uh, only for receiving and not for transmitting, because the problem, of course, is with the transmitting. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and how much of a fine this fellow ends up eventually getting. Yeah, I think I think the I think they can be stopped from transmitting. The, the predominant radio they were talking about was a Belfang UV5R. And I can't remember it definitely, but I think they can be put, uh, have the transmit disabled. However, or certainly in memory mode, they can. However, the problem comes, I think, with a lot of these radios is if you're selling a two way handy talkie to somebody who doesn't know anything about radio, they take it out of the box. They think it's an appliance. And they think, oh, well, I trans- I've got two of them, and they talk to each other. That's great. That's all they're interested in. What they don't realize is that the frequencies that are in those radios just happen to be the test frequencies when they were being fe- set up in the factory often. So I think that's the problem is you just don't know where any of these radios sometimes are going to, what frequencies they're going to be on. And I think that's what happens with the general public is they pick one up 
or a couple up and away they go. Edmund, what's your thoughts? Well, funny you should mention that. There was an example of that within the last month here in the UK. There is a frequency somewhere around 462 megahertz, and I'm not going to say exactly what frequency it is, mainly because I can't remember off the top of my head, but it corresponds with one of the frequencies in the FRS, Family Radio Service, in the US and Canada. It's also one of the test frequencies that comes pre-programmed into the Baofeng BF888S. And last month, when the Commonwealth Games were on, that frequency was being used as a downlink frequency from a helicopter for talk back or IFB, interrupted foldback, for the BBC uh, TV production crew, which meant that it could be heard over a wide area of the UK, including down here on the South Coast. Now, if somebody um, using one of these, well, probably more likely a BF888S, which may well have um, a CTCSS code turned on on receive, they could have been quite happily transmitting away on that frequency. And whilst it wouldn't have caused a major problem down here, if they had happened to be in Birmingham, where the Commonwealth Games were on a quarter of a mile away from where the, the frequency was actually in use, then that could have caused all kinds of unintentional QRM. So, yeah, it's, it's not just one of those things that can happen on paper. That's a, a real-life example from last month regarding radios being wide banded i think there is a good reason for it for example on my one and only visit to the united states for dayton hamvention in 2019 my first thought was i was going to take one of my more expensive yesu handhelds that can also do c4 fm and uh, aprs in the end, I didn't because that radio is locked to the two meter and 70 centimeter bands as they are in the UK. So, well, and Europe as well, 144 to 146 megahertz and 430 to 440 megahertz. If I had taken that radio to the States, I would not have been able to call CQ on two meters 146.52 or indeed on 70 centimeters on 446 megahertz on the nose so in the end i ended up taking uh, a cheap not a bad thing but a cheaper chinese radio that will quite happily transmit anywhere at vhf and uhf that you like and um, i use that uh, to do my one and only soter activation so I'm not against widebanding in that sense, but it's just a shame they can't do it so that it's only wide enough to cover the amateur bands worldwide rather than the entirety of VHF and UHF. And back to what you said about locking them, Martin, yes, you can in using the free Chirp software, and you can also restrict them by locking them into memory mode. The trouble with that is that the method for another person to unlock them is exactly the same uh, the same free software and a programming cable 
So uh, I don't really know how you, you get around that one. And last but not least, totally agree with Ed. If the authorities warn you not to do something, and especially if uh, they warn you more than once and you choose to ignore that and carry on doing it, then frankly, you deserve everything you get and uh, quite a, a lot more on top of that. And that was, I think there was one other thing I was going to mention, but it slipped my mind at the moment. So uh, back to you, Martin. Yeah, well, for I pass it on the dam, 446 megahertz is uh, calling frequency in the state 77s, I believe. Over here, 446 is license-free. It's uh, for half what Handy Talk is, about 16 channels I think they've got now, at half a watt, and you're not supposed to be able to change the antenna on it. It's a fixed antenna so the general public can't use it. Now, in the UK, they say up to three kilometres, which is total rubbish because... Edmund, you've done further with, with them, and I've done further with, with one. Uh, if you're up on top of a hill or a mountain top, the rules don't apply. They go miles. So you could interfere with um, somebody in, on a helicopter downlink or some other reason. Dan, have we left you anything to say about this one? <laughs> well, the only thing I'd say is that it always amazes me when I hear these kind of stories that the uh, perpetrator, if you will, or the person being prosecuted, they're warned about it, and yet they still persist in doing it. You know, there there was a story about uh, some guy, I think, in California who was interfering with normal operations, and he was warned not to do it, and he kept doing it. So it threw him in jail. It's like like these people have a death wish or something. So I that that's just my comment. I just find it amusing that they, uh, you know, they're warned and yet they still persist in uh, doing something illegal. Do you think? Do you think Dan that he possibly took a calculated risk that the cost of any fine? would come to less than the money he was making on on doing what he was doing, perhaps. Well, well, you know, so he's selling Baofengs, right? So he can't be making a ton of money on them. You know, he said, buy 50 of them. How, how much could he make per unit? Ten bucks? The thing I was going to say, which I, I forgot, was that I'm, I'm going to stick up for Baofeng a little bit here. Um, towards the end of the article, it makes reference to illegal radio transmitters. Well, they're not. It's the purpose to which they are put that is potentially illegal. And um, I've got a Baofeng BF888S, and I was walking along the beach one day, and I accidentally dropped it on the stones. And fortunately, it didn't break. But if it had done and had never worked again, I wouldn't have been anywhere near as upset as I would have been if I'd done the same thing with a really expensive Yesu, for example. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in, totally with you there. Well, you don't know what market he was selling them into. He could have been, you know, making three or five times what us amateurs would pay. I mean, us amateurs know what the value of one of these things is. I mean, yeah, I own a, a UV5R. I've had it a long time now. Truthfully, I paid £15 for mine. Well, the true story is Chris Howard bought two for £30, and he said, do you want one for 15 I went, yeah. And it was, at the time, it was just going to live in my desk drawer at work, and if I got time to operate at lunchtime, I'd use it. So, 
Yeah, they, they, horses for courses. Horses for courses. You know, you know, even if he was selling them for a hundred dollars each, right? He's still only going to make five thousand dollars revenue on the sale. So, I to me, I mean, the fine would be obviously more than that. And he's finding, and he's finding that out. <laughs> Probably one of these people have gone, oh, it's my human rights. I have the human right. rights to do this sort of thing. There's a lot of people that are bigots out there. Anyway, I don't know the man. I'm only surmising. <laughs> All right, move on to our next one. I, Karen, I found this and got quite interested about it as uh, radio hams in nuclear uh, power plant exercise. And uh, this is... You know, we, we hear lots of stories from Ohio, probably because I've been there, I spot them more than most, but Aries doing um, an emergency test with a power plant there. Uh, what's your thoughts, Karen? Okay, uh, Martin, this is a power plant among many here in the States. There are nuclear power plants. In fact, in, in my own backyard, uh, one had been constructed many, many years ago, never went online, believe it or not, and was ultimately dismantled. That's another story. But had that not happened, uh, we, we too would have been part of an exercise like this. Uh, basically, the Federal Emergency Management Agency conducts these drills. It's no reflection on the Ohio plant that <laughs> its number came up and there was a drill held there because all of the plants eventually have these drills happen. A lot of them uh, are held in the fall, but they are held once, sometimes twice a year. And it's basically a preparedness scenario that is required. And HAMS, of course, are very happy to be a part of it. Uh, often the Aries groups and the uh, many of the local HAMS in the, in the clubs nearby take part in it. It's a successful way to test uh, communications and certainly try out new forms of communication, new scripts for transmitting uh, real-time information. Just a good way to keep the muscles flexed if heaven forbid, heaven forbid it should ever be needed. And any of us who, who has uh, lived through emergencies or quasi-emergencies or worries about such emergencies in the vicinity of nuclear power plant knows how very important this, this kind of drill can be. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad they're doing it because uh, it certainly bonds the team together. And, um, you know, if they ever have to do anything, at least they will be far more prepared. prepared. So that's a good one. Dan, I'm going to go to you next. I know your club doesn't do this sort of thing, or your club doesn't, but you probably have members. But what's your thoughts on it anyway? Well, like Karen says, you know, these are kind of common things. We have a, actually have a nuclear power plant, not more than probably about 50 miles as the crow flies from my home. And every year or every other year, they do an emergency exercise just like this one. And the hams participate. Uh, there's a guy in our club who is actually from that town, and he goes down there and participates with the local Aries group down there or whatever the group is that it is. So this is not not too unusual, but it's uh, it's it's good. You know, it's a good thing because, you know, bad things can happen, and it's always good to be prepared. It certainly is. It certainly is on that one. 
Edmund, what's your thoughts? I have mixed feelings about this one, actually. If I had a nuclear power station just down the road from me and I was invited to take part in a drill, I think I would really, really hesitate, to say the least, because whilst I'm uh, generally in favour of amateur radio people taking part in events and rehearsals and drills and practices to uh, paint the amateur radio community in a good light apart from anything else. If you're going to go to the time and trouble and expense of having a drill, that says to me that there is at least a small intention of actually calling upon those people if the worst ever happened. And I wouldn't want any amateur radio people, well, anybody else at all for that matter, but especially not amateur radio people, going into harm's way. If you're involved as a volunteer, is it taken as read that you appreciate and accept and understand that there is a risk, however small that might be, that if your nuclear power station did happen to leak or explode or something that you would be expected to go there and expose yourself to a health hazard situation? We we don't know that, Edmund, in fairness. I mean, you know, I would guess that the power station will have had certain ways of handling all sorts of problematical or potential problems. My theory, and I've not done one of these, and Ed or Karen may correct me, is that in this instance, the amateur radio boys could be on the outer perimeter, you know, putting up roadblocks to stop people going into an area, passing information to, you know, making a control centre, a manning a control centre, that sort of thing. So don't know, because uh, I've not done one. But there you go. Ed, what's your thoughts? Well, even worse than uh, a leaking... Uh nuclear power station you might say what's worse than that when i got into amateur radio in the 70s i joined raynet in the uk and raynet's the equivalent of your aries in the us and and all the other mcoms people and attended one meeting with the county emergency planning officer well he was presenting at the radio club and there was obviously several raynet members attending and it was what would happen if uh, a nuclear war started. So we're not talking a small leak of nuclear power here. We're talking the full-blown missiles flying everywhere. And they wanted, at that point, amateurs to go into the emergency comms centre that they had just finished building, uh, a bunker, and operate the communications from there. Probably wouldn't be amateur radio equipment, but amateur radio skills are very useful in that situation and yeah who knows st- who who is still alive so it's uh, good to have uh, that capability i put the question to the um, county emergency officer does he have any information about how radio waves would work when the air is full of nuclear radiation would we have a very noisy band would be it be normal etc etc Uh, He promised to get back to me with that information. I never got it. I presume it was classified. So, you know, that was one of the things in the early days. So uh, nuclear power stations going wrong. Yeah, they're run by humans. They can go wrong. 
um, as we saw with Chernobyl. Uh, and uh, was it five, four mile island, five mile island in the US and whatever. So, yeah, having these sort of exercises, the amateur radio component of it is quite small, but the process for the people actually operating and working within the nuclear power stations, that is very important and uh, certainly should be done on a regular basis. And you know, in the worst situation, yeah, there's a situation there where amateur radio may be called upon. And, yeah, so uh, having these tests and having amateur radio involved in it is is a very good thing to happen. As, uh, as we've pointed out, this particular story is about one happening in Ohio, but uh, they happen, I presume they happen, or I hope they happen also in France, where there's a lot of nuclear power stations and other countries that still use nuclear power. Back to you, Martin. Yeah, I'm sure they do, Ed. And yeah, we don't often we don't often hear about this sort of thing. And I, I raised this one because I heard about it because it was publicised. But it, it's good that people do this. And I suppose if we really wanted to find out more about this, then we'd join the team and we'd be assigned to do all the bits and pieces. Like yourself, I was a member of Raynet for a period of time. Unfortunately, I uh, work commitments uh, wouldn't allow me to be available at weekends, so I had to say, look, I'm sorry. Uh, at this point in my life, I can't uh, commit to the weekends you want me to do. But the emergency service boys certainly do a good job. Right, moving to our next one. And although it's a state story, I want to let Edmund go first because he hasn't had a go. Our next news story, September the 11th, first special call sign. And 9-11, another special event station commemorating a, a terrible uh, act of atrocity against the, the US. Ed, Edmund, what's your thoughts? Well, special event stations serve a dual purpose most of them are to celebrate events but the other side of it is to commemorate events and in my life this is right up there as one of the the things that i, I will remember still when I'm, I'm very very old i think i was actually at home watching this on television live as it unfolded and my dad turned and looked at me and simply said, the world will never be the same again. And uh, I think he was quite right. And in, indeed, it's only in the last couple of years that I have been able to watch documentaries on television about 9-11 without feeling extremely uneasy. Um, so a few years ago, even if I tuned across a very strong signal from Whiskey Alpha 2, November, Yankee Charlie, New York City. Um, I don't think I would have worked them. Um, but these days, I suppose time is a healer in some respects, isn't it? It would be quite nice to work them as a, a gesture of solidarity and support, I suppose. So there's two ways you can go at it. One of them is on HF. The suggested frequency for 40 metres 7238 falls outside of the 40 meter band in Europe 
uh, indeed on that frequency you're in the uh, the 41 meter broadcast band um, very close to Radio Romania International if memory serves but for the higher bands they've suggested 14340 on 20 meters and 21350 on 15 meters which are good choices of frequencies actually because even if those bands are really wide open and very busy it's quite rare for activity to extend that high so by choosing those frequencies they're likely to be in the clear in terms of uh, qrm from surrounding stations on 10 meters 28 450 well that's a little bit more uh, where the action is on the 10 meter band but uh, that would be a lovely uh, contact to get on 10 meters from europe anyway for lesser mortals in terms of uh, large HF antennas. You can also go down the D-Star route. Uh, they'll be monitoring a, a reflector, X-ray Lima, X-ray 020 Bravo at the top of the hour. And QSL cards are available if you send a self-addressed stamped envelope uh, to the supplied address. So I probably won't end up working this, but I hope that many, many people all over the world, not just in America, do manage to have a QSO with this station. And indeed others, there are other call signs on the air around about now from uh, various places to commemorate this event. And uh, I hope that um, a large number of QSOs will uh, symbolically tell um, everybody and anybody who cares to look at the number of QSOs that people worldwide stand with America in spirit, in solidarity and in commemoration of what was an absolutely terrible day. Yeah, I agree with you, Eben, totally. Karen, what's your thoughts? Okay, Martin, I, I speak here as the uh, in-house New Yorker this week. <laughs> who actually did see the smoke rising from the sky that day. I am only an hour and a half east of New York City. And so uh, the impact here was secondary, but very palpable. First, I, I do want to add uh, to Edmund's very excellent comments. Um, the, the station will be monitoring D-Star, at the top of the hour. So for people who cannot make the trip via HF and still wish to have a contact, he will be monitoring D-Star um, and that's information on the QRZ page. Uh, my feeling is, you know, amateur radio, one of its real strengths is the ability to step in following disaster, following tragedy. And we normally think of this in terms of MCOM. In fact, we, we talk about hams doing drills and, and, and preparing for communications in the wake of natural disasters. Now, what happened on 9-11 was clearly uh, as unnatural a disaster as you would ever encounter. It was the unthinkable. Uh, for many of us, it felt like the end of the world. I think there is likewise no no higher purpose sometimes for amateur radio than to step in with all of these special event stations, this one included, and uh, two or three others that, that have been in the news, and support them, contact them, tell your stories, remember, 
and honor the people who who died on that day and hundreds more who who came to the aid of that scene and have since been sickened or have since died as a result of ailments they contracted from being exposed to uh, what was released into the air following uh, the impact of the planes. And let's not forget what happened in Washington, D.C. and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Back to you, Martin. Yeah, it's a very sobering moment talking about this. Uh, yeah, I came home, I'd gone for a job interview, came home and went to see my mother and saw it happen on the television in the UK. And yeah, that, that those images stick with me for a long time. And I might have been umpteen thousand miles away, but my thoughts were with the people in the US then and now. Dan, what's your thoughts? Well, I really have nothing uh, more to add to this except to say that uh, special event stations are always good. Uh, you know, think of things in your locations where you might do something similar and uh, just do it. Uh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, special event stations are good because they do remind people that some can be positive and some can be commemorative. And uh, as I say, that's a good thing. Ed, thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, just to add to everybody else's list of when they saw this, this was right in the middle of breakfast TV in Australia. And my initial thoughts was, is this a new film that's coming out or something? It was like something out of Hollywood. It can't really be happening in real life, can it, that uh, that these planes are flying into a, bu into a building? And uh, it took a while before the realisation hit, and I thought, Oh, my God. Yeah, again, sorry for all the people in the building. And, uh, you know, these things happened. And, again, what uh, I think was it Edmund said, that, uh, or, or was it you, Martin? I don't know, that uh, the feeling that the world will never be the same again. And it was that sort of a feeling once we realised it was for real. One thing I would say is that the, the station is actually run by James, uh, James Ponar, Jr., from Staten Island, so not far away, to the whole disaster. And, uh, yeah, uh, the fact that he's saying, if you want a QSL card, please send SASE, is a bit of a problem if you're abroad, you know? So uh, how are we going to get a US stamp to put on a, on an envelope to send to him? So that's unfortunate uh, that he's basically... Yeah, it's going to be difficult for anybody abroad because I don't think, unless somebody corrects me here, I don't think in the US you can buy a, or I don't think you can buy on the internet a US uh, stamp and print it at home in Germany, for example, can you? Like you can in Germany and many European countries. I don't think we can do that for US stamps as far as I know because, you know, we could send over an envelope with a, an international address on, but how do you get a US stamp to go on it? So I guess it's going to be the usual thing is stick three US dollars in or something if you can get it. Yeah, Ed, uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe there is that kind of uh, reciprocity, but I, I would suggest for people who are planning to contact the station and are overseas, uh, email him 
and and ask. I mean, he may be inundated with emails. That's okay. Next, that means next year he will make arrangements on on the website to tell people. But I think they should go to his QRZ page, email him, and ask what what is the preferred method for this. It does actually say or bureau. So uh, you know, you could send him a a request via the bureau as well. It appears so. Uh, there's still that method if uh, if your country still has bureau. But, but good, good on James for running this. Um, it's obviously something close to his heart as well because he's so close to whatever happened, what everything that happened there. And good on him for uh, keeping doing this. I think, uh, Karen, did you say this was the second or third year of this? Oh, he's been doing this for a while. I There is a really old news line interview we had with him. I'm going to try to locate that. We talked to him some time ago. I think he's been doing it since 2018. Well, I was going to say that the, the, call, sign, the call sign was actually available, WA2NYC, and added to QRZ.com in 2010. So maybe he's been doing it since 2010, in which case it's 12 years. Yeah, it's possible that either that is his call sign, his personal call sign, or uh, he decided to use the personal call sign for for the for the special event. Ah, but yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. but I, yeah. I know he's got pictures of the QSL cards that he's been used for prior events dating to yeah. 2018. The, the, the one on QRZ.com at the moment is a QSL card with the, the laser lights going up from uh, where the tower used to be. Yes. So that's from a few years back, but he's certainly spending a lot of his time on this and uh, mm -hmm. well done to him and uh, all success you know lots of contacts i hope yeah well that's uh as i say let's wish him uh, all the best and to hope that you do get your curacao cards if you want them right the next few news stories karen you gave us them uh interestingly i know the guys you can you can discuss this but Regs change for amateurs in Cambodia. Effectively, it's pretty much stopping people getting uh, licenses in Cambodia for us um, foreigners. Karen, you want to go first? Sure. This really, over time, will shut down amateur radio in Cambodia as uh, licenses come up or certificates come up for renewal. Uh, because the equipment must be approved by a Cambodian regulator and uh, there's no approved test. Uh, so it's, I, I kind of saw this and thought about a dog chasing its tail. You go around and around and around, but you don't get anywhere. What this means is somebody has to advocate for the hams who are there. Um, and there is no organized amateur radio national organization to do this. I, uh, hams are, I guess, ad hoc, trying trying to uh, do something about this. But again, it's not a full organized effort on the part of a group that, that has some lobbying strength. So whether they get to do this or not and succeed, I don't know. I know the regulations have been on the books now for two years, but it's possible this is only coming to a head now because 
oops, all of a sudden, now the uh, the licenses are coming up for renewal. They, they might have wanted to get a bit of a running start on this, but, you know, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. Yeah, as I say, it's uh, not so good. Ed, what's your thoughts on it? Okay, well, a bit bit more background information on this, because this is a story that Carol and myself covered on our newsline a couple of weeks ago. The situation in Cambodia is that there are very few, if any, Cambodians that are licensed. The majority of the amateurs there, and there's not very many, are all foreigners that are there working. For instance, uh, and, so the, and as Karen said, there's no national society. This information about this problem came to light from a post from one of those amateurs over there, who was Dave Taylor, ZL3AIK, who holds the Cambodian call sign XU7AKG. And, and indeed, it's the situation that the licenses are for a certain number of years, and if it's three years possibly, and the law has been changed. Cambodian government has said, uh, before we'll issue any new licenses or extensions to your license, uh, you have to show us that the equipment that you're using is certified by our by our department. The tests can be done. They'll cost a lot of money, but they can be certified that that radio is not going to cause us problems to our military communications, to our other other radio services, etc., etc. And the approach Dave Taylor has taken is to say, okay, we can't obviously pay for, you know, every radio that the amateurs have there to be tested and everybody's got different models. Let's get one tested. Or, in fact, the approach he was taking was, can we get the uh, Yesu FT891 test information from another country, such as the US for the FCC? and supply that to the Cambodian government. He's also, I believe, gone to Yesu, but the market's not big enough for them to have to pay for it all. So that's the situation. You know, you might say it's a money grab from the department in the government in Cambodia, and Thailand has got a very similar problem coming up. So there's a similar kind of problem. However, Thailand does have a national society that's fighting it, in Cambodia, the problem is that the amateurs there are people that come and go because they work for international companies and bring their amateur radio gear with them. They apply for and get uh, normally a Cambodian license and uh, operate and so on. And then when they go home, they take everything home with them. But, you know, it, it looks very much like uh, this is going to be a problem next year or maybe earlier for some of the amateurs there. And, yeah, I, I can't see a way out of this. You know, the, the Cambodian government have put the law in, in place already, so uh, that is the law there. So you know, somebody somewhere is going to have to pay the testing company or a department in the Cambodian government to uh, test this uh, one radio so that, uh, every amateur there can then buy this one radio, this one model of radio, and be able to say, yes, it's on your list. Back to you, Martin. Yeah, yeah, that sounds horrible, Ed, especially when in a few years' time um, that radio may go out of production. And then unless you're leaving them or selling the second-hand ones in Cambodia before you leave, there won't be that many around. But 
anyway, uh, Dan, have you worked Cambodia at all? Because I know you do a lot of DXing and that. Uh, have you worked Cambodia, or what's your thoughts on this one? Oh, no, I, I, I haven't worked many countries in Asia, actually. Japan, maybe, but uh, certainly not Cambodia. But my take on this is it seems to me like this would be a job for either the AI, IARU or maybe one of the big DX clubs like the Northern California DX Foundation. I mean, these DX clubs have a vested interest in keeping these countries on the air. So uh, I don't know, maybe there's some, I, I don't know what they're going to do or what they could do, but maybe there's something they could do to uh, uh, get uh, the Cambodian hams over the hump. Yeah, it would be good if they can, but as I say, from what I've heard from you guys and what's here, it looks like it could be that there will be no amateur radio, or very, very little amateur radio activity coming out of Cambodia in the foreseeable future, which is a shame. Right, move to our next news story. The ultimate in SOTA, POTA, portable, all-in-one event. Well, I got excited about this, and I'm sure Edmund has, but Karen, you wrote, put it in, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay, thank you, Martin. 2,000 miles of excitement up and down the east coast of the United States. The Appalachian Trail, for those listeners who may not be familiar with it, is gorgeous wilderness uh, reaching from New England uh, down into the American South. It is hiked by many, many people over sometimes the course of several months, but a lot of visitors are just day visitors. Uh, And this event, which is taking place in early October, is hoping to light up parts of the trail with people doing soda, poda, or just good old-fashioned portable from different points on this trail. This is the second year it's been happening. Yes, there will be the hope for DX. Uh, the, the activators will be looking to score some, some DX from wherever they may be. It's the second year. It was founded by a fellow who fell in love with operating from the, uh, portable, from, I don't know if it was from the trail itself, but somewhere in the mountain regions of New York. And last year said, hey, let's do this. So about 50 portable operating enthusiasts signed on and made lots and lots and lots of QSOs. And so he is bringing it back this year. And right now, uh, what they're attempting to do is just get folks to sign up as stations and commit to um, commit to doing an operation from the trail. Sadly, uh, even though it's here in the East Coast, um, I can't be one of them. Uh, Someone had asked me if I was going to be doing that, but uh, it's not close enough for me to really be able to to make that trip. And I'm still pretty new to portable. And I think this this would really require more planning than uh, I'm yet capable of doing. But I think this is going to be super exciting for those of us in the States who will be chasing and anybody overseas hearing the Appalachian Trail on the air, it's, it's, I think it's just going to be astonishing. It offers lots of opportunities for everybody. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a great event, um, Karen. certainly does. Dan, 
Yeah, I mean, you've uh, you know of this, and you've met people who've walked it. Um, what's your thoughts? Oh, I think this is a great event. Uh, Karen mentioned earlier that uh, last year was the first year, and they had fifty stations. I I can easily see there be twice that many this year if uh, you know get the word out. The the Appalachian Trail is a is really a jewel in uh, outdoors activities here in the U.S. And you know it stretches so far and it's been enjoyed by so many people and uh you know it's, it's kind of a special event in a way right it's a special event operation and uh when you combine it with soda and poda it's like uh got all the ingredients for just a just a wonderful ham radio event it's it just sounds fun to me dan and amateur radio needs to be fun and has to be fun because it's a hobby and this just sounds fun so i quite like it Right. Ed, what's your thoughts? Uh, just add something for the listeners. It's on October the 1st and 2nd. Um, my thoughts is I wonder if anybody's actually camping out overnight and uh, operating overnight because of clock differences and things, you know, it's uh, and, and conditions, uh, propagation. I presume majority of people there are going to be uh, running HF, but uh, I guess uh, VHF as well. But yeah, it'd be nice to uh, to work some of the people on the on the trail, and uh, of course for me, there's a possibility of uh, forty summits there being activated. Probably not all forty, because some are probably very difficult to get to. But uh, I've heard uh, from what we talked about before the show that the trail actually goes over the top of some of these summits. So this is not an easy trail. This is. Uh, quite a, a challenge and um again before the show we heard that some people actually uh, uh hike it from one end to the other and take maybe a year to do it my goodness these people must be fit but yeah great event and the fact that it's got soda summits involved and porter parks involved and i would guess also some wwff regions involved as well along its length yeah it should be uh, great for all of those award schemes Certainly should be, certainly should be. Now, Edmund, you like special event stations. Uh, now, I know you won't get any of the VHF, but are you going to listen out for any of the HF on this weekend? Yeah, indeed. With Solar Cycle 25 being on the way up, if uh, you're in Europe, it's uh, worth putting up either a vertical antenna or a horizontal antenna, half a wavelength or more above the ground. And uh, if propagation is on your side, then hopefully you'll be able to hear or work some of these stations. And just just as an example, um, I've I've taken it down at the moment because we've got uh, thunder and lightning going over. But uh, I've got a seven meter uh, squid pole, and I cut a, a ten meter long piece of wire and connected one end of that to a 49 to 1 transformer, earthed um, the other side, although that's not strictly necessary, I don't think. And I've got that in like an inverted L configuration. I know inverted L antennas are more common on, on lower bands, but this thing is in my front garden, so 7 metres of wire vertically, then 3 metres horizontally along the top. So officially it, it works on 20 metres and 10 metres. Unofficially it works on all the bands in between as well with a tuner or through a tuner. 
And using that little bit of wire, I have heard stations from America in one direction and Australia in the other, and from all kinds of places in between. So something like that's a very simple antenna, costs next to nothing to make if you've got a bit of wire lying around and a a roach pole or a flagpole you're not using. So yeah, chuck something like that up in the air and see if you can work some of these stations and okay i know that they're unlikely to have special event station call signs but if they are doing pota or sota or world worldwide flora and fauna that's uh, that's the next best thing martin yeah it certainly is certainly is that's a good one and karen you were pre- pretty much um very busy coming up with some of these you found some good ones i didn't so uh, the last news story is a uh, new advocate for slow cw now i know you and dan are big cw fans so karen do you want to go first on this one sure thank you martin this this one is uh close to my heart brand new club brand new like i i don't even think the wrapping paper is off of it yet they already have some membership in states outside Connecticut, even though it is called Connecticut CW Club. They're looking for people to join anywhere in the States and even overseas. This is a club that is going to support people who aren't really in the fast lane yet. Uh, It's going to have special events. It's going to have outings. They'll have meetings on Zoom. They want to be a real club. But what I like about, especially like about this, is is that it is welcoming for everybody. Uh, it's people helping other people, which, again, we, we talked earlier about what, what makes for a successful club. And this is a small one that seems to have all the good human elements. The fact that this club is going to already have its first CW contest later this month is pretty fantastic. They they got up and running pretty quickly. The website is ctcw.club, Charlie Tango, Charlie Whiskey dot club. That's the website. And it's uh, easy enough to get to. You could see all that it's about. And the fact that it came into being tells me that CW is here to stay. People love code. Dan, <laughs> Dan will probably concur with me. Um, it's, it's a good sign for those of us who learned the code and love the code. And so I couldn't be happier to share this story with the listeners this week. Back to you, Martin. Yeah, I uh, I understand that uh, code is still around, and I, I I don't knock it. I just can't do it. But you know, it's still a worthwhile mode of communications, and it's nice to see people still carrying on and keeping the skills. Dan, Karen said you'd probably have more to say on this one, so go for it. Well, so I'm usually an advocate of encouraging people to get faster. And, and the reason, there's several reasons for that, mostly because personally, I think it's more fun to be able to send faster. I, I kind of liken it to uh, when I used to bicycle and, you know, you'd have 
I never was one of the really fast riders, just like I'm not one of the really fast CW guys now. But, uh, you know, you had people that just sort of went slowly. And we used to say they piddled, not paddled. And they were having fun doing it. So that's fine. But for me, being, you know, on, on a bicycle, going as fast as I could, trying to keep up with the fast guys was, you know, was, was my, uh, my cup of tea. But having said that, and so I'm that way in CW. I, I think going faster is it's certainly more fun for me. But if more people have fun going slowly, hey, I'm all for that, as long as they're on the bands. And uh, I like I say to everybody, you know, if you come back to me slowly, I'm going to slow down and contact you just as if I was operating 25 words per minute instead of 12 words per minute. So anyway, that's my that's my take on this. Uh, you know, more power to them. You know, whether or not we have enough CW clubs, uh, I don't know. That's a that's something that could be debatable. You know, you know the uh, the Straight Key Century Club, for example, uh, is kind of known as a slow speed CW club. But hey, everybody's uh, everybody's got a place in ham radio, and uh, I hope they find their place. Yeah, yeah, me too, Dan. And uh, strike key is something that you can't particularly do very high speed with, isn't it? Uh, from what I understand, if you want to get much above twenty or twenty words a minute, you need a paddle. Is that correct? Either, either a paddle or a bug. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I say poor wrist probably can't handle more than twenty words a minute. High, high. Well, yeah, that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 wear and tear on the body, right? Ed, what's your thoughts? Well, I'm I'm not going to comment on the CW side of things, but I'm just going to comment on something we talked about earlier, which is this hobby has got so many different facets to it, and it's interesting to see. Even though we say, "Oh yeah, Morse code's one of the facets," it's not just Morse code anymore. It's slow Morse code, medium speed Morse code, or fast or and by fast Morse code, they mean really hyper fast, so 60 words a minute and things. And and that's fine. And and it's another thing about clubs, coming back to our first point, uh, first uh, item as well today, that some clubs will do some things in their way a certain way and other clubs do other things. So uh, a CW contesting club is probably going to be uh, high-speed CW. Uh, this particular one in Connecticut have said they want to concentrate on on the slower speeds uh, and actually, not just the slower speeds, but people new to CW is the way I read what they're doing. And all power to their, uh, to their fists, because uh, every facet of this hobby is very good. Nobody is going to be able to do every facet of the ham radio hobby or like every facet. But because there's so much choice there, we're very, very lucky. Back to you, Martin. Yeah, you're dead right, mate. We are. Uh, there's a lot going on. Well, Edmund, I know you've uh, been doing Morse for a little while as well. So uh, what's your thoughts on this one? Well, I'm still very much in the slow category. Um, they say accuracy transcends speed, but there's no reason why you can't have both. Um, I know somebody very well who um, can quite easily do 30 words a minute uh, almost in his sleep without making any mistakes. But then, as he told me, he started when he was in his teens. And uh, that was a few decades ago now. So it seems like the uh, 
the key to success, one of the keys to success with Morse code or anything else, foreign languages, anything you like, is to start when you're really, really, really young. But leaving that aside, um, I would simply say to people, if you are one of those people who can go at 30 words a minute in your sleep, if you're calling CQ repeatedly and nobody is coming back to you, please give consideration to dropping your speed down because even though 15 words per minute half speed would probably seem excruciatingly slow to a seasoned Morse code operator, if by dropping to that speed you get one or two people in the log and it takes longer for each QSO admittedly, but even so you get one or two people in the log by going down to 15 words per minute, then overall I would suggest that that is better than persisting at 30 words per minute and working nobody at all. And I've been listening to 40 metres quite a lot since last Saturday for a reason I'll come on to uh, when we do the, the what have you been up to section. And it's been very noticeable that almost all of the CQs that I've heard that have gone unanswered have been sent at high speed. So food for thought. Back to you, Martin. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. Let me let me just jump can I jump in for just a second on that? Yeah, Kush can Dan. Sure. So first off, I'd like to if anybody I usually call CQ twenty three to twenty five words per minute. If anybody hears me calling and that's too fast for you please, please, please come back to me at whatever speed you're comfortable with. Because uh, I'll, I'll slow right down and, and work you because as, as uh, Ed says that, you know, that's, it's better to have a, a contact than to not get any kind have any contact at all. Secondly, what I would suggest to the other fellows who don't slow down is that unless, unless you sort of nurture those operators they're, they're never going to get faster. And so, so the number of folks you're going to be able to contact at the higher speeds is going to continue to dwindle. So, so, you know, that's, that's what I'm all about is, is like, uh, as I keep saying, is helping more people have more fun with ham radio. And if that means operating slower, I do it. And everybody, all the other CW operators should do that too. <laughs> yeah. Good advice, Dan. Good advice. Because, you know, this is a friendship hobby. We ought to help those that need help, and we ought to, you know, it, it, it's friend, friendship. If it isn't fun, people won't do it. Make it fun for them. They'll come back to you. So there you go. Right, that concludes our news stories. Let's find out what everybody's been up to since uh, the last time you were here. Ladies first, Karen, do you want to go first again? Sure, Martin. I will be happy to. Uh, well, my my update is simply a continuation of uh, what everybody heard about last time. Uh, I am continuing uh, to fine-tune my portable station to get ready to take it on the road. Hey, let's hope next time we are all together for the ICQ podcast. Let's hope I can say, guess what I did? I loaded up the car and went on the road. So 
let's let's shoot for that. I, I think we're pretty close. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to figure out what I need, what I need to take with me, and what my reliable frequencies will be. Because once I'm out there, I've got to work with what I've got. So that's been a uh, part of it. And I do operate uh, with a straight key uh, because I am not 20 words a minute and I want the practice, uh, even though I have a vibroplex electronic here, I am taking the straight key and, and keeping it honest out there. Regarding CW, which is my other pursuit, I continue to work toward uh, different endorsements uh, in the straight key century club and uh, taking my time with that. That is a great technique the club has uh, to keeping you on the air and keeping you motivated uh, to work toward increasing your ability to copy. I'm okay sending. I don't have a problem sending. I'm copying. Like with most people, copying is where the challenge is. I will also say on a personal note, I have been the recipient of uh, Dan's ability to slow down. Uh, I have heard him on the air and I have come back at a much slower speed and he very quickly slowed down for me and we have had one, perhaps two QSOs. And thank you for that, Dan, if I haven't already said so. Two nights ago, I heard an operator who was going 30, maybe 35 words a minute. I think on the reverse speaker network, they clocked him at 35. Okay. Well, one thing I'm happy to say is if I can copy nothing else, I've gotten pretty good at copying call signs, even at a high speed. So that's, that's a skill I'm in, I've been working on. And my feeling is if you can copy the call sign, go for it, work the station. And I did, and I went back to him uh, at a much slower speed. And let me tell you, this is one of those rare instances I was so happy. He not only slowed down and exactly matched my speed, this ham had a beautiful fist, easy to copy, really fabulous. So uh, I encourage everybody, uh, as we just said a few moments earlier, please slow down for the slower operator you encourage us and make us feel really, really good and encourage us to work on our speed going forward. That's the excitement from New York. Over to you, Martin. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're having fun, Karen. And when you go portable, hey, when you go out when your portable runs, trust me, you will take far too much stuff and there will be something you will forget. That is uh, the law of going portable. But don't worry, you'll still have fun and uh, you gradually get it sorted that you know what you need to take. But you will still take far too much stuff, I would suggest. Ed, what's your suggestions or what have you been up to since the last time we first spoke? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to correct something in one of the earlier items that I was wondering whether James took out the WA2NYC call sign purely for the uh, commemoration event of uh, 9-11. Uh, since the call sign came out or he got it in 2010, which was, of course, before 2011, this must have been, and this must be his own call sign that he is using as a commemorative call sign on these days. So again, all power to James for doing that. 
from my side, I've been doing quite a few bits and pieces, so I'll try and keep it as short as possible. One thing, Martin, and we can mention this on air as well, get a bit of publicity or on podcast. Um, I'm now handing over the reins of the uh, ICQ podcast team, quiz team, who will be uh, playing against the AR Newsline quiz team the on 10th, yeah, this coming Saturday. So uh, the actual quiz will have taken place and been recorded prior to this podcast being released. Both Karen and I cannot take part in either of the teams because we wrote the questions uh, and the questions basically get all mixed up across the two teams. So it would be a bit wrong if we took part and we knew the questions answers because we wrote the questions. But good luck to both teams. I'm actually happy I'm not there because uh, I would have a foot in in both camps, which uh, would be a little bit embarrassing. So, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll hear about that in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and one or other of the uh, the groups cheering the fact that they, uh, in this fun trivia quiz event, that they uh, they won. The other thing that doesn't sound to start with very much amateur radio related, but it calls on a lot of amateur radio skills, is I've been working on improving my internet speed. Uh, here I have an LTE, so 4G link, as my main internet connection. And it was getting slower and slower and slower. I contacted Deutsche Telekom and uh, eventually got uh, an engineer that uh, quite honestly said to me, well, the cell that you're going to is quite simply overloaded and there is only a certain amount of data bandwidth and that gets split between everybody that's connected. And it's a shame that you couldn't connect to another one further south, which he could see wasn't very hard, very much loaded. So that's exactly what I did after we got off the phone with him. Um, I installed a 1800 megahertz Yagi, pointed it at the other cell and uh, put in a repeater, a commercial repeater for the, uh, for the cell signal. And then for the last three, four weeks, I've been running at 30 megabits per second download instead of two or three and upload at about 15 rather than uh, one or two. I say for the last three weeks because today it suddenly dropped. So I guess somebody else has found that cell and uh, we're getting the uh, the capacity divided between us. But that was a situation that uh, my skills and knowledge in amateur radio came in useful for something else. Uh, it's still radio. And yeah, so uh, overall, it's still a lot faster than it was. So I'm still ahead on the on the game. The other thing that's quite important is HEMA, which is a award scheme for activating Summit. Uh, in the last three weeks, we've added three new regions, Saxony in Germany, uh, Victoria East Gippsland and Victoria Northeast regions in Australia. And uh, we've got a few more coming down the pipeline as well. And so uh, you will see that HEMA HEMA is uh, spreading uh, quite a lot and providing a lot of uh, summits with a prominence between te- uh, 100 and 150. Uh, so below the SOTA prominence, so not clashing, but uh, generally a little bit easier than SOTA summits, but not always. So that's it. And oh, the other little thing is uh, a couple of days ago, I took possession of a new radio, a new toy. I've got the uh, ultra portable QRP all mode HF radio, uh, the Zygu G106, which uh, you probably have seen in various uh, YouTube videos and on various blogs. 
it is a brand new radio from Zygu, so uh, tomorrow I receive the first firmware upgrade to apply to it uh, to fix some of the uh, initial uh, teething problems. But uh, it looks like it would be a nice radio to take if I uh, fly somewhere. It's a lot smaller than the other portable radio I have, and uh, it's still an SDR uh, and various other things. So uh, that was my uh, present to myself because I haven't bought a radio in quite a while. Uh, back to you, Martin. Yeah, all sounds good, Ed, and sounds like you've been having fun. Certainly does. Okay, well, Dan, I, you weren't with us the last episode because uh, you were out and about working for your company. Tell us what you've been up to over the last oh, couple of months, Dan, then. All right. Well, I'll tell you, just starting with the reason I didn't show up for the last uh, podcast episode. So over the last month, I've actually taught two in-person classes again. And this has been a really great thing. I, I didn't realize I missed it so much. You know, I taught some online classes, but yeah, it just wasn't the same experience. But So the first class I taught, was at DEFCON. And uh, if uh, any of the folks out there have ever been to DEFCON, you'll, you'll know it was quite an experience. This was at, in Las Vegas, and DEFCON is, uh, is sort of a hacker slash cybersecurity conference. And it's a huge conference. There, there must have been 40 or 50,000 people there. It was just huge. And they have special interest groups there they call villages. And one of them was the Ham Radio Village. And uh, that's who invited me to teach a class. And so I had quite a few people in the class and a lot of them got licensed. And so that that was a lot of fun, just from, from being able to attend DEF CON and uh, teaching the class. It was the first one back in person and the first one with the new question pool as well. And then a week ago, last weekend, uh, I taught uh, another one-day tech class at a ham fest called ham exposition which is a lot smaller <laughs> and um, uh, it's a more of a traditional ham fest uh, it's the hudson division and i think another division sort of a combined convention they maybe had a thousand or two thousand people there so a smaller event but uh, still a lot of fun so uh, i've been doing a lot of other things but uh, that's basically uh, basically at getting back into the the classroom and teaching the new question pool. Well, that's uh, that's good news, Dan, because as I say, I certainly find when I do uh, presentations, they're much better when you do them in person. And uh, same with uh, teaching, because you can get the body language and you can get the vibe and you can start to understand where you have to move the course to accommodate the uh, the the students so that's that's good doing it in person um, yeah you 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 get it because you've taught the classes too yeah yeah Edmunds oh, I know you was out doing a special event because you uh, gave us that as the feature a couple of episodes back but so what have you been up to special events all the way and incidentally harking back to the last subject if you are a cw operator and you turn up at a special event station to do cw if the radio in use there is not one that you are familiar with then find out before you sit down and call cq how to change the speed because 
if you start calling at whatever speed the radio is set at, and if that's the speed you're comfortable with, if you start calling at that speed and then somebody comes back to you uh, a lot slower, it's a bit late then to suddenly realise that you've got absolutely no idea uh, what button to press on the radio to uh, slow down your sending speed if you're using a bug or an electronic key, for example. So, yes, the International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend on the third weekend in August was a real good success. Um, propagation was considerably better than I feared it might have been uh, across the whole weekend. We, from Shoreham Lighthouse, we made... 357 contacts altogether, of which 50, 50, were with lighthouses, which must be close to a record, um, if indeed it's not the record, for Shoreham Lighthouse. And what was very nice is that even though there were some call signs that uh, did sound very familiar, because you, you'll get stations come up who registered year in year out for decades on top of those there was also a nice selection of call signs that i don't ever remember hearing before so even though the total number of registrations 393 was down a bit on say five or six years ago that number is up a lot compared to 2020 and 2021 when uh, coronavirus was around uh, big time. So all of those things taken together, it was a really successful weekend. And uh, I was so enthused and hyped up uh, on the Sunday. I came straight home and registered us for the 2023 event <laughs> on the official website. So that was that. Another special event station I'm involved with, Golf Bravo Zero Kilo Sierra Sierra, Kent, Surrey, Sussex for the International Air Ambulance Week, uh, which runs until Sunday the 11th of September, so the day that this uh, podcast is released. So I will try to be on the air, probably on 40 metres mainly. Uh, on that Sunday and uh, if I haven't got you in my log already then uh, hopefully I will will get there. Conditions have been difficult on Saturday and Sunday just gone they were difficult because there were solar flares and the sun was uh, very disturbed and over the last few days conditions have been difficult because there have been thunder and lightning so uh, I've had to unplug antennas quite regularly so my ambition was to get 100 QSOs across the nine days altogether. As of Wednesday evening, so slightly over the halfway point, I'm sitting at 51. And some of those, actually probably about a dozen of those uh, on various bands, have been FT8 contacts rather than SSB, say it quietly. So I don't know if um, if I will get to the 100, but that's certainly the ambition, Martin. Right. Well, that sounds like you've uh, enjoyed yourself, which is a good one. Okay. Well, I'm gonna, we're running long, so I'm not going to take too long on what I've got, what I've been up to. Talk group update. Yes, I like always, I've been operating 4 metres, 2 metres, 70 cents. Not spoke that much about the uh, ICQ Digital project, but... 
version 2, which for the user should be, and I'm touching wood and saying should be, the exactly the same experience for a user, is at the moment with um, Brandmeister being um, checked to see if they'll let us connect the Brandmeister network to it. And I would hope we would have that live fairly soon. We do have, or we've announced that we're going to do another 12-hour session on the digital group, which uh, to me is a bit of fun because that's probably my baby in some ways. So we're going to have a 12-hour system. That's on the Saturday the 17th of September between 070 and 1900 UTC. So a 12-hour session. Even if you're the other side of the world, you, you won't be asleep for 12 hours or very few people sleep for 12 hours. So uh, if you want to join us, um, details are out there and you can find more on our website as well. But as I say, please come along if you want to. I'm also at the moment, um, I, I managed to obtain an AOR 2002 scanner of which I'm now renovating. I took it apart to change one of the buttons that wasn't working at all. And in fairness, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, stop messing around. It's such a peg to get it apart. Let's just change every button. There's 17 buttons and they're all manky. So uh, it's worth doing all 17 and it doesn't cost that much to do. Also bought a little um, standoff of the auction site. For my FT817, it just tilts it up and sets it up so it makes it easier to use. Uh, so I'm uh, intending to give that a shot later next week when things get quieter again. And last but not least, um, last weekend in the UK was SSB Field Day and the club was out for 24 hours. Yeah, great fun. As uh, Edmund said, the band's went in great shape because... I heard hardly any uh, inter-G stations. Yeah, UK just didn't seem to have that many on. However, we were masses of continental Europe, but going uh, west to Wales and places like that, literally nothing. So uh, it was a bit strange. But all in all, we had great fun. So that's what I've been up to. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to thank the guys for, for turning up. And we'll move on to the next part of the podcast. I'd like to thank Mr. Dan Romacek, KB6NU. Well, thanks for having me back. I had a great time. Yeah, it's great to have you, Dan, and uh, always enjoyable. I'd like to thank Karen, uh, KD2GUT. Great to be back, and we sure covered a lot of ground this week, Martin. We certainly did, and uh, a bit heated before we pushed the recording button, but... Not arguing this amongst ourselves, just a heated discussion on some of the news items. I'd like to thank Mr. Edmund Spicer, M0MMG. Thank you for having me on, Martin. No problems, mate. And we'll catch up with you again soon. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Mr. Ed Durant, DD5LP. Thanks for the invite. Fun as always. It usually is, Ed. Right, 73, guys, and we'll continue with the rest of the podcast. 73. 73. 73. 73. Keep your amateur ham radio podcast advert free by donating less than a length of coax. 
visit www.icqpodcast.com forward slash donate now. For all the news, links and information, visit www.icqpodcast.com. And now it's time to have a look at the news in brief from me, Colin M6BOY. We'd like to thank our listener and supporter, Ed, uh, Whiskey X-Ray 2 Romeo, for forwarding on the piece of information for us. He's letting us know that the West Palm Beach Amateur Radio Group and the Fairlawn Amateur Radio Club have agreed to a unique partnership in sharing ideas, activities and best practice to better encourage their growth and development of each other's radio clubs. So Nomar of the uh, Fair Lawn Radio Club says this relationship, while informal, has the potential to address a number of issues and ideas that we as a club could not do alone. Uh, there are local issues that we face are no different to all other amateur radio clubs, promoting amateur radio in our communities, finding and retaining new members while keeping them engaged. We hope that this experiment will enable us to learn from each other and help to address these issues so we can both benefit as a result. Um... Michael Kilo One Whiskey X Ray uh, mentioned, and he's part of the West uh, Palm Beach group. As an amateur radio operator, each of us has a responsibility to the hobby and our community and to be good ambassadors for both. We see this venture as a wonderful way to leverage uh, that and to grow this unique friendship of amateur radio. And this is uncharted territory for our organization. We welcome input on how better to reach these goals, whether in this fruit, this may be or not bear. We are grateful for the opportunity. So I think the most important thing we're going to do here is obviously, guys, put links to both groups on the ICQ podcast webpage so you can see the uh, information I work on there. Um, between them, this is going to basically pull together approximately 175 members across both uh, groups. Uh, and as I say, uh, it will certainly open up uh, great opportunities for the guys to work together. Um, so this is uh, obviously an exciting opportunity and uh, I say maybe you could reach out to the uh, guys if you'd like to also get involved in uh, such an arrangement and see if we can help broaden their base News from Germany here that a new entry level class license is on its way Uh, the chairman of the DARC and uh, the roundtable radio amateurs group uh, basically are pleased to announce that there's new regulations that implements the long-standing requirements uh, for remote operation to finally be allowed in the future uh, and say so implementing the beginner class license band uh, as well at the same time uh, so basically uh, while there are existing ENA classes they're raising level due to introduction new topics and digital technologies the new N class focuses on operational knowledge regulations and basic knowledge of technology Holders of the new end class will be allowed to transmit on 2 metres and 70 SEMs with a maximum power of 10 watts ERP. Uh, and say so they're suggesting this new entry level class should offer access to the hobby, in particular to young people and older people, in accordance with international requirements. Uh, so, as always, we'll pop all the information on, on the website for you to check that out. But uh, it's a great news in Germany that are making it even easier to attract new people to the hobby. We finish up uh, with uh, news from Africa as more countries come on board for 60 metres. And this will give us Botswana, uh, Lesano and Iswantini, Formula Swaziland, uh, to the 60 metre band uh, operations. So each has the new WRC 15 amateur radio secondary allocation of 5351.5 to 5366.5 kilohertz. That now means there is a total of 89 countries now making this band available worldwide. Right, now we're going to head over to our feature this episode. And this feature, uh, this episode, we uh, asked the question, is 10 watts enough? Hope you enjoy. And now what you've all been waiting for. 
this episode's feature from the ICQ podcast. Hi guys, for this episode's feature, I wanted to talk about is 10 watts enough? Now, some of you are instantly shouting at me saying no, but I'm going to continue with that because this was the question that was asked of me at SSB Field Day in the UK. Now, unlike other parts of the world, the UK license, you get uh, more power the more qualified you become. So the beginner's license, you get 10 watts. And some of the guys that were at the field day were saying that it was really great because they were operating under supervision on 100 watts. Isn't it great? I can work people. Well, equally, I would suggest that in a contest, people are listening because they actually want your your contact. But let's not bitch about that. Let's uh, go and look at what we can and can't do. So my understanding of QRP is 5 watts maximum for CW, or up to 5 watts for CW, and up to 10 watts for phone. Now, I'm sure that some people will differ on that, but that is my understanding. Now, I've been through this before, and I'm not going to labour it here. Is your radio set up correctly? I've done it before, but what this really means is, have you set your microphone gain up properly and got everything ready and operating properly, got your right filters in and all those sort of things? If uh, you want me to cover this again or anybody individually wants me to cover it, then just drop me an email and I'll, um, I'll have a chat with you offline. So the next thing is, being on the right band at the right time. You know, it's no good being on a band where nobody's there. I know that we have a, a worldwide hobby and people should be on all around the world. But if the transmission conditions from your location via the propagation is poor to that part of the world, you ain't never going to get there. The other thing is, you know, what are you trying to achieve? Is it HF, VHF, or UHF? There are a lot of things on HF that you have to take into consideration. And I would suggest 5 to 10 watts on VHF or UHF certainly isn't a handicap in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, let's let's continue. Now, if there's a contest on and you are a QRP operator, often people say, oh, they never hear me, but so I give up and go away. Well, having spoken to uh, a big contest station, they said they work the big, noisy, loud ones first because if they don't, they won't go away until they're worked. So they might have actually heard you. The problem is that the big loud noise that hits them first, they get rid of, then another big loud noise hits them. So if you're a QRP operator and you're not serious at winning the contest, often the last two or three hours is the good time to be in the contest for you. Gives you lots of countries, lots of opportunity, because the contest stations are listening. They want your points. And, you know, who are you trying to contact? 
you know, it'd be lovely to contact the other side of the world, but you ain't going to do it on VHF or UHF. So you've obviously got to work out to make sure you're on the right band at the right time. Now, location. I've written home, portable, and mobile. Well, in fairness, the home operation is probably the easiest one because you've got everything around you and uh, you're able to uh, continue with a, a with a proper fully set up system. Portable is interesting because often if you go portable, you get a lower noise floor because you're away from a built up area. You'll have a lower noise floor, so you should be able to hear stations you might not hear at home. And the last thing I'm going to say on mobile is, you know, mobile for for VHF and UHF ain't too much of a problem. For HF, can be a problem because you've got a shortened whip. And also, uh, a lot of car manufacturers these days suggest that you don't run more than 10 watts of RF from the car because it will interfere with the engine management system. So, running 10 watts isn't going to cripple you there. Okay, what mode do you use? Well, let's be honest about it. CW is a very, very efficient mode, and so is SSB. You know, uh, AM, which uh, very few people do, but there there are people doing AM, is about 75% inefficient. Effectively, you've got two sidebands and a carrier. If you can get rid of the carrier and one of the sidebands, then you're putting all your power, all your 10 watts into SSB. If you're doing AM, you're probably only transmitting 2.5 watts because 5 watts is lost in a carrier and 2.5 in the other sideband that uh, is not required. FM, well, FM mobile, yes, not a problem. You can obviously do that. And don't forget, to VHF and UHF, you can still do CW, SSB as well, if you have a rig that does it. Now, going on to the antennas. The type of antenna you're going to use is important. It's worth understanding what each of these antennas and the advantages and disadvantages of them are. The angle of radiation. You know, if you're radiating straight up, apart from satellites, and all right, MDIS, but uh, but uh, you want a low angle of radiation so that uh, you'll go long distance. Uh, you don't want to be sort of radiating an angle about 45 degrees because you won't go as far. The direction of radiation. So it's no good putting your, your aerial up east-west if you want to work east-west. Uh, if it's a dipole, um, your, your lobes will be pointing north-south. So, putting your aerial up to aim it at the particular area you're looking at is also a very, very useful thing to do. Now, antenna gain. Once again, some antennas have gain, others don't. We, as a club, operate a QRP contest usually once a year and it's 5 watts on 2 metres. Now, 5 watts radiation from the radio doesn't mean to say I can't have an antenna with 10 dB again on. 
And so often we use my antenna with 10 dB again. 5 watts from the radio gives us an effective 50 watts pointed in the direction that we're trying to communicate with. Now, that's almost from one side of the country to the other, or right up the country, because from uh, just south of London, on a reasonable high point, we've worked into Scotland, we've worked into Northern Ireland quite happily, and the radio was only actually putting out 5 watts, well within your licence agreement. MVIS. Okay, that's something that a lot of people don't even realise they're doing. You put an antenna up, you don't get it high enough off the ground. In which case, a lot of your signal goes straight up and comes down like a cone. Therefore, you're going to work, you know, up to five, six hundred kilometres. But if you're in the UK, you work into Europe, most of the UK, but the chances of you work in the States are very remote because your antenna's not designed to do it. So just be aware of that one. Antenna tuners. These should be thrown out with a bathwater, quite honestly. In fairness, if you are a low-power station, you don't want to be wasting any uh, w- wasting any power. What you need to do is get your aerial resonant on the frequencies you're on. Because anything that comes back... And as uh, high SWR and you tune it up with your tuner and the rig says, yeah, thank you very much. I'm very happy with the ATU or the AMU matching unit, what it should be called. Bear in mind, any power that comes back gets dumped to ground in the ATU as heat. So if you're transmitting 10 watts, and five of them are coming back and getting dumped as heat, you're really only radiating five watts. So get your antenna. Make sure that that is resonant. Um, Don't bother with an ATU for QRP. It's a real nightmare. Now, feeder. The correct feeder for the frequencies you wish to operate on. Okay, RG58 is... Absolutely no good at VHF and UHF. Nice thin cable, but above 10 megs, it's about as useful as a chocolate fire guard. You know, it has so many losses in it. So if you are going to use RG58, you need to be operating in the lower bands. And then the other thing to think of, and I know some of the foundation license holders in the UK uh, haven't done DBs yet. You've just been told loss and gain, but you haven't been told about DBs. 3 dB of loss is effectively 50% of your power gone. So if you're transmitting 10 watts at the radio and your cable length, the length of cable you've got has got a 3 dB loss for that length, you're now 5 watts at the antenna. That's how difficult it is, because the other 5 watts just gets generated in heat in the cable or back in your PA to do your PA damage. The other thing is that, uh, all right, you say, I'll turn my rig up to 20 watts and therefore I'll get uh, 10 watts at my antenna. Correct, you would. But if you've got loss in one direction, you've also got it loss in the other direction. So if you've got a 3 dB loss on receive, that means that you're losing 50% of the signal that's trying to make it from your antenna to your rig, 
which means you might be a little bit deaf, so you won't hear people, therefore you can't work them. And one other thing to just be aware of, connectors, antenna and feeder connectors, often, if they come loose, the SWR goes up, which also causes you power losses. So when you're putting on a PL259 or an N-type, just have a pair of pliers with you. Don't be Mr. Hercules and wrench the thing through 360 degrees because you'll damage the rig. But a slight, once you've tightened it up by hand, a slight fraction of a turn with a pair of pliers will keep that antenna connector and rig connector tight. And over a period of an afternoon, if you're out operating portable, you know, you're moving things around. Things do come loose. But that's valid for mobile. It's valid for home use and portable use. Tight, make sure you've got it nice and tight. Now, another thing that people don't realise is our rigs are supposed to run on 13.8 volts. Lovely. Well, that's what you've got in the shack with your nice power supply. But if you're out uh, portable, and you running off batteries, if your battery's only putting out 12 volts, that means that the rig may not complain because it's a lower voltage, but it will shut the power back a bit. So whereas you might think you're running 10 watts, you're probably running 8 or something like that. Different rigs have uh, different characteristics, but you will lose transmission power. The next thing is time of day. You know, knowing what bands are likely to be open at what time in the day is something that kind of you really need to study. That's what propagation's all about, understanding it. But as a very quick and dirty rule, the lower frequencies are much better at night and the higher frequencies are much better during daylight. And if you read books on propagation or you look up propagation, it'll tell you why. Also, if you're able to, how about if you've got a scanner, take it with you and have your scanner running on other bands. Because you could be, for argument's sake, on 15 metres and the world could be on 20. So... Listen, if you're able to, try and listen to other bands at the same time while you're out and about. Now, if you're at home or you want to use your mobile phone or tablet or whatever, DX clusters. These are reports on the internet of where the signals are, where these stations are coming up. And often, uh, the one I like personally is the one called DX Heat it will show you what bands are open to what regions and give you a clue as to what band you should be on. So things like that are quite useful. Now, I know I've covered a lot of ground and I hope that the people that are new to the hobby and somebody who, who might like to do other things listens to this. Because there's more to it than just setting up the rig. The setting up the rig is very, very important. But we have to reduce the waste. We can't waste any power. If we've got 10 watts, we need to have the 10 watts, not 
five or seven or whatever, you know. So the rig has to be set up correctly. And the things I've mentioned also need to come into play. And the last thing is, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, we're about to go into the winter where you may not get out so much. But it's worth studying propagation on those long winter nights to start to get an idea. Now, trust me, you won't get it in five minutes. Uh, Most of us amateurs still don't fully understand the subject. However, it is a very interesting subject and it will help you. So, hopefully for the new people that come into the hobby, this might give you a few pointers. Is 10 watts enough? Well, if the bank conditions are good and you're not wasting uh, your resources, then long-distance contracts are very possible. But, once again, if you're using an antenna that's crippled, like a mobile whip, uh, while you're stationary, um, that might, you know, you're just creating yourself more problems. Now, in good conditions, I have worked the UK to the States mobile with 10 watts, but it don't happen every day. But hopefully some of these suggestions will help you. The ICQ Podcast, advert-free since 2008. Well, everybody, I hope uh, our features episode is 10 What's Enough has generated some thoughts for you uh, in relation to, I suppose, uh, not being wasteful. And uh, as I say, you know, using uh, what's available uh, and say what's suitable for the tasks that you need. And uh, uh, just because you can operate, uh, I say, with more power in, or buy something bigger and better in life. Is it exactly what you need? So, uh, again, a thought provoking idea for a feature for you this episode. Now, as always, we uh, love to hear your uh, feedback uh, from us. And uh, uh, we got feedback from uh, Dave Goodwin. Dave's a very kind supporter of the show. Call sign Victor Echo 3 Kilo Golf. And um, a couple of episodes ago, we were uh, discussing about new uh, bands for Canadian hams. And uh, as I say, uh, Dave has uh, come back to us and given us uh, a local perspective uh, to let us know uh, about uh, a correction that we need to do. Uh, and I say, in essence, the fact that the Canadian table frequency has shown uh, 47, uh, 472 to 479 kilohertz as an amateur band, but that is not a regulatory authority. The CTFA is, is a planning document, and it may indicate a regulatory intention, but it's not a regulatory document. Um, so basically, many Canadian hams mistakenly believe they've been given permission to operate in the area, uh, which was uh, incorrect. And uh, as I say, the regulators never took action against any of them uh, that is aware of when there was never any complaints from primary users. Um, but as I say, the regulator, uh, after taking a while, has updated RBR4 to give uh, hams in Canada 630 metres. So some Canadian hams has engaged in wishful thinking getting on the 472 to 479 kilohertz before they were authorised to. So uh, Dave's cleared that up for us. And uh, as I say, let us know that. And we do appreciate uh, your local feedback, Dave, and as I say, helping us to uh, make that correction. So again, thanks for getting in contact with us here at the ICQ podcast. 
And uh, so, as always, if there's anything you'd like to raise or thoughts or opinions, etc., I'd say best way of doing that is visit the uh, ICQ podcast webpage and uh, click on the contact us button. And say drop us a, a line and uh, say let us know say what your thoughts are. Say if you've got anything to add to any of the uh, the things we cover in our show. So thanks, Dave. Uh, say for pointing out to us. And again, really do appreciate uh, your continued support. Right, well, the, uh, I know that you've been working hard on Digital Group uh, 2.0 as uh, we come up and approach uh, Digital Voice Day as well for us. And uh, as I say, I wonder if you'd like to give everyone an update on, uh, as I say, what you've been up to on the Digital Group. Yeah, no problems at all, Colin. Well, in fairness, I uh, <laughs> hopefully I sound a bit like a broken record at times on this because it's taken a long time to do, but we want to get it right. Um, next Saturday... It is our Digital Voice Day, uh, our activity day. We're going to do this between uh, 0700 and uh, 1900 UTC. And uh, you're all welcome to join us. Information is on the website, uh, and it's been out on Facebook and various other groups. So, uh, yeah, you're welcome to join us if, if you if you like. Um, you can also join us with um, Droidstar. So even if you don't have a digital radio, you can join us by Droidstar, or you can actually listen to the uh, talk group with Brandmeister's hose line. Uh, once again, how to do that, it's all on our website. So, uh, you know, don't feel left out. Um, it is a matter of bringing people on board and uh, enjoying Moving to the second part of what Colin said, yes, um, our version two of our digital voice system is currently at the moment parallel running with the live system. And as I as I and my colleague move stuff from the uh, uh, current live system onto uh, our new system, there shouldn't be any changes. If there are, um, if there are problems, please let me know. But I'm hoping that uh, for most users, you won't notice a, a difference. Things are slowly changing, and as I say, uh, the initial tests of parallel running have certainly not caused any problems in the first four or five days we've been doing it. So, uh Hopefully, by the time the next podcast goes out, or not long after, we'll have actually moved over onto 2.0. And in fairness, for the user, it will make very little difference. Uh, it makes it more supportable and uh, more reliable outside. And uh, there are options of, um, the, by the time we go fully live on it, we will have added P25 and NXDN, although NXDN was supposed to work on the old system, never did. So uh, NXDN and P25 will join and potentially others as uh, the need requ requires. This is now very scalable. So there you go, Colin. That's what we've been up to. 
Yeah, I know that's a, that's a fine, uh, great piece of work you've been uh, working on there, as you say. And uh, as I say, I'm looking forward to next weekend and the digital uh, talk group weekend. And I say, lots of ways of getting involved. Um, so as I say, as, as we always say, no excuses. We create opportunities, uh, and a great opportunity to get involved, talk to your fellow listeners. And uh, as I say, not only that, but you might also catch your favorite ICQ podcast presenter as well and uh, get an opportunity to say hello to them. Well, as always, we'd like to thank everybody uh, for taking part in this ICQ podcast uh, episode. Uh, on the uh, News Round Table, we'd like to thank Dan, Kilo Bravo 6, November Uniform, Karen, Kilo Delta 2, Golf Uniform Tango, Edmund, Mike Zero, Mike November Golf, and Ed, DD5, Lima Papa. Uh, as always, uh, as I say your support and donations keep us, as I say, going in what we do here on the ICQ podcast. And this episode, we would like to thank our anonymous donor and Nicholas Lutz, Whiskey Six, November, India, Kilo. Now, since we recorded large sections of this episode of the ICQ podcast, so you would obviously have heard in the news story of the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Our condolences and our messages and thoughts, etc., go to the uh, UK Royal Family and members of the Commonwealth and uh, outer territories at this time of, as a national grieving, uh, as say, as in her passing. Of course, Her Royal Highness uh, will be joining His Royal Highness Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who obviously was a previous patron of the Royal Society of Great Britain. Uh, and I say, obviously, we wish them, uh, as I say, you know, eternal thoughts and, as I say, uh, you know, in terms of there. Never got easy to do these things, but I think we're going to end this episode very, very simply. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. <laughs>